So it's good to be together to look into God's Word this morning. You can take your Bibles and find your way to the book of 1 John. I know I probably don't need to say this, but I just want to encourage us uh, of the goodness that God has in store for us from His Word. Uh, If you turn on CNN and Fox News, they're not going to be reading from 1 John. Um, But we, as God's people, have the privilege of gathering together to give undistracted attention to words that bring life to God's people. And so what a blessing it is to have this chance together to encourage, find encouragement from the scriptures. Today we'll be continuing our expository sermon series in John's letter. And I hope you have found encouragement from this series already. Uh, If you can't remember anything encouraging, take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so this morning, uh, as your heart uh, feels pains of guilt or shame over sinful choices this last week, uh, let hear the encouragement, the exhortation, don't sin. But then as you feel that guilt and shame, remember you have an advocate, Christ. And this reminds us of the scattering of purpose statements that the Apostle John uh, has given us in this letter, which lead to that, what we think, that kind of primary purpose statement, which you can find in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here's the purpose, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This letter of the Apostle John was written so that we could know that we have eternal life. This letter, we find tools that are going to help us sort through the questions and uncertainties that are inevitable for living a life of faith in a sin-cursed world. And so it might be that an issue that was of particular concern in John's day when he was writing this letter was for his readers uh, who had, had some who called themselves Christians and then had departed from the Christian faith. And you can find that if you look down later in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 and following, you're going to see phrases where he describes some who went out from us, from the Christian fellowship, but they were not of us. And imagine how that would have been jarring and alarming to the Christian community in that day. Uh, when those who had called themselves Christians are suddenly now abandoning the Christian faith. It seems likely that these Christians were troubled by uh, those who would call themselves Christians but then live in a way that was disagreeing with the Christian confession. So 1 John presents to us this stark reality that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is necessarily a Christian. Now, as we begin this passage, I want to pause and make sure that we understand this important truth. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. And I'm not saying that to make anyone in here suddenly doubt your confession of faith in Christ, nor do I mean to sound arrogant as if I am the sole determiner of somebody who is a Christian or not. I say it because we live in an age that promotes and celebrates a sort of self-determined authority and autonomy. We live in an age where it's commonly thought that we can make something true simply by speaking it, by saying it. We see this in various spheres of our society, whether it's gender identification or sexual identification, where someone can say something, and the spirit of our age requires everyone else to accept that statement as fact, as true. Well, contrary to the spirit of our age, Christianity, world, the Christian worldview, differs from that. We are not the, the sole authority that can determine what is true or fact simply by speaking it, simply by what we say. We actually have to submit to a higher authority, And as Steve mentioned this morning, a sovereign authority, the authority of Yahweh God of Christians' faith. 
And so it seems that the Apostle John wants his readers to understand that just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're truly a Christian. But then if we can't base everything off of what somebody just says, then how can the people of God evaluate and truly understand for themselves if they have eternal life? John gives his readers some evidences that we're going to see in this text, some tools that we can help us, some tests we can call them that, some tests that will help us determine and evaluate if what we say or if what is said is actually true. And really the core principle of this passage, verses 3 through 11, is going to be our focus this morning, is found in verse 3. And by this we, here it is, know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him. This is good news. God has given his church direction and clarity and truth in regards to how can we know that we know Christ. I believe the uh, um, John Stott in his commentary categorizes in this passage these two tests or categories that we can that we can find. By the way, we handed out two copies of that at our members meeting last week. Uh, so if you took one of those home, you're going to find that in, find this in that commentary. These two general categories would be the first test would be a moral test, which is also known as an ethical test, and the second one would be a social test, and that'll be verses seven through eleven. So we're going to use those categories to help us work through this passage and understand it. But before we get to those categories. I believe we need to make sure we understand what John means when he writes about knowing Christ. And I believe he's referring to knowing Christ there because of the verses that precede it. He has just been talking to us about the advocate that we have before God in Jesus Christ. Knowing Christ means to embrace and experience the transforming salvation of God. I know this is not nothing groundbreaking new for many in this room, but knowing Christ means to embrace and experience the transforming salvation of God. The first thing we can look at to define this idea of knowing is looking at the other words and phrases that John used. So take a look with me here in chapter 2 and verse 3. We have this phrase, knowing Christ. And then down in verse 5, we have another phrase that describes to be in him. So John is using these phrases synonymously. Knowing Christ in verse 3 is the same, means the same thing as being in him, in Christ in verse 5. Again, knowing Christ in verse 3 means you are in the love, the love of God is being perfected in you, verse 5. Uh, knowing Christ in verse 3 is the same thing to verse 6, abide in him. It means the same thing as in verse 9, to be in the light. These are all phrases that John is using to describe that first idea of being in Christ, of knowing him. And so these descriptions show us that John has a depth in mind. He has this, this idea of experiencing the knowledge of Christ, not just a surface knowledge, an intellectual knowing. And I say this because there's a lot of different kinds of knowing, right? I mean, you all have experienced this. For instance, you might read about war or read about a particular battle, but then if you had the occasion to speak with somebody who was in that war or who, or who lived through that particular battle that you, have, that you know all these details about, they would have a much different knowing than your knowing. You might be even an, an expert in the subject matter, so to speak, and know all the details and the data, but there would be a different level, a deeper experience of their knowing than you have because they've lived through it, they experienced it. You can know a lot about skiing or scuba diving or fill in the blank, whatever it is that is your hobby or your interest. But if you've never done that, there is a, there's something missing. There's a body of knowledge that is missing that escapes you of truly knowing that particular subject until you actually experience it, you do it. 
And so what I'm trying to make sure we understand here is we're not just understanding that John is saying, do you know Christ? Like, if I were to ask you, do you know who God is and do you know who Jesus is? I think basically everyone in this room would say, yeah. And you're sitting here, right? On a Sunday morning. But John is going after something deeper, not a passive, dry knowing of simply having a lot of information, but an active knowing in that it's a knowledge of experience where you have tasted and seen God's goodness through embracing him through faith and implementing that faith in day-to-day living. So what kind of knowing or knowledge of God do you have? Is it, are you curious about God? Are you curious about Jesus? Do you think maybe he's a good teacher? He's had a lot of kind of amazing things to say. They arrest your attention. You're curious about his turns of phrases and you'd just kind of like to know more about somebody like that. Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning because Highlands Baptist Church is going to be obnoxious and constantly teaching you about who God is through Jesus Christ. Friends, what John is writing about here of knowing Christ is not just this intellectual, passive, dry knowledge, but a deep embracing through personal experience. Have you been, here's other ways that it's been, this has been described in the scriptures. Have you been given new life in Christ? You can read in John chapter 3. That's different from 1 John, a letter. John chapter 3 would be the gospel of John, found earlier in your New Testament. And John 3 describes this idea of knowing God through Christ as this idea of, of having life in, in Christ. Or have you gone from being blind to the things of God to now having sight to the things of God? This is described in 2 Corinthians 4. Have you gone from spiritual death spiritual life, Ephesians 2. Those are all different descriptions from the scriptures about what John has in mind here in 1 John chapter 2 about knowing Christ. So now that we understand that John has this deeper knowledge in mind, how do we know if we know Christ? I know lots of no's in this, right? I can't get away from it. That's how John writes this, okay? How do we know that we know Christ? The Bible text that we have this morning gives us two tests that will help us determine that. The first test is you will obey Christ, the test of ethics, the test of morality. You will obey Christ. And the second is the social test. You will love like Christ. So we're going to use that as the schematic for the sermon this morning. The moral test of obedience provides Christian assurance. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 is where we find this. The grounds of assurance that John is giving his readers in verses 3 through 6 ties knowing Christ to obeying Christ. This is why this test is often called the moral or ethical test, because it talks about obedience. Look at how simple and direct these words are, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John states this principle in verse 3. Obedience is what brings assurance. And then in verse 4 and 5, he gives a negative and then a positive explanation of that principle. In verse 4, it's the negative. Do you see it? It says, if you say you know God, but you do not obey God, that's the negative, then you're a liar. The positive is in verse 5. If you obey God, you have embraced the love of God. The love of God is being perfected in you. So here's where our modern age squirms. Maybe you squirmed. Our modern age wants to be tolerant and allow for any form of what someone might call quote-unquote Christian. But our secular age is fine and eager for someone to say that they know God, no matter how they live or what their choices are. 
But so much of what is called Christian then, according to John, in our age, is not Christian. It would be Christian in name only. The scriptures say, if you do not obey God, you do not know God. And if you say otherwise, you are a liar. Now, I know we're kind of shocked at how direct these statements are, right? But this is how clear the scriptures are. In other words, it's impossible to know God in a saving way if you will not obey him. Knowing God is more than a sentiment. It's more than just a feeling. It is life-changing. And this is what John wants his readers to understand. So we can think of it this way. If your conduct contradicts your confession, then your confession is counterfeit. If your conduct contradicts your confession, then your confession is counterfeit. What characterizes your life? Obedience to God or disobedience? Now, you might say, but I know him. But again, John wants us to evaluate and assess our obedience. Now, I realize that this question might seem too simplistic by how John states it, right? I mean, this text is not suggesting that Christians are sinless. He's already covered that, right? Remember in verse 8 of chapter 1, you can just glance there. It's probably just a, a screen or two up or a page over. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So he's not talking about people being sinless, being being sinlessly perfect, John has told us how to deal with our problem of sin. In verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But even that action of confession would be obedience to God, right? Dealing with our sin according to God's plan, not our own. The Apostle Paul, as a mature, godly Christian who has written much scripture under inspiration by this time, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 15, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You hear the the urgency and the solemnity of what he's going to say. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He goes on and he says this, Of whom I am the foremost. So the Apostle Paul had this reality, this humble realization that before a holy God, on his own, he's a sinner. But still the expectation is then, that Christians, even though they're not sinless, even though they're people who still have failures, what this passage in 1 John is not allowing for is someone to say they know God while having a life characterized as open disregard to God's clear commands. Jesus put it like this in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He asks those that are near him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's asking that question, and this is what John is teaching here in 1 John chapter 2. Now, if your inclination is to want, okay, just give me a list then of what things I need to do so I can be assured that I know that I know God, then we've missed the point. John is not saying that people who know God are strict list followers. He's describing the spirit of a person united to God in faith through Jesus Christ. The Pharisees uh, in Jesus' day uh, were a prestigious religious group. They technically obeyed the law in the tiniest and specific details they were real careful rule abiders so and i could imagine that somebody like that would hear john write this or hear it read and say oh i'm good but at the same time they had disregard to the true spirit of what god was saying this is why in matthew 23 jesus is saying this woe to you scribes and pharisees again these are the religious elites those are very careful about how they observed the law of god you're hypocrites these are Christ's words. You, for you tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
And so John doesn't want us to go into this idea of, well, just give me a, a, a real specific list of everything I need to do so then I can be assured. No, what John is pointing to is that obedience to God, you know God, and it flows out of a life of obedience to God, not just in these specific minutiae that he must tell you kind of in a legal contract, but in a heart aligned to God in glad obedience. So the obeying that John writes about here is not something we can reverse engineer. As if the action for us after looking at a passage like this is to be really careful about all the things you're doing now so you can be assured that you actually know God. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, these are just other passages that are saying the same thing that John is writing here in 1 John 2. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's, the, there's a connection of obedience and assurance. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, here it is, here's what ties it to 1 John 2, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And say, well, that passage is alarming because it says that they're doing all sorts of things. Isn't that obedience? No, they're doing things in the name of God, but it doesn't say that they're obeying God. And friends, we live in an age that would love to do all sorts of things in the name of God and call it okay or Christian, but yet would be, dis- would be in disregard of God's clear, informed will from his word. So then, we cannot, in summary, we cannot say that we know Christ when we live in characteristic disobedience to Christ. To know Christ means that you will characteristically obey him. So this might make us then wonder about the relationship between knowing God and obeying God. For instance, uh, as I was studying through this passage, I did start to scratch my head and say, well now, um, do you obey God in order to know him? Or do you obey God because you know him? And if we're not sinless, right, if, which means that there are occasions, there are times where we're not obeying God, we're in sin, then how do we find assurance that we truly know him if we regularly find ourselves in this, in this sense of disobedience to God? How are we to handle those challenges? Well, this brings us to where John moves next in verses 7 through 11, which is the social test. The social test of love provides Christian assurance. So really this passage, you could break it down into those two main uh, tests. The, the moral test provides Christian's assurance and the social test of love provides Christian assurance. In verses 7 through 11, John is moving from the moral test into what we can call a social or love test. The social, this love test, centers on this idea of the Christian concept of love. And the way that John moves from obedience into love, I think, is interesting. Uh, you can see it here in verses 7 and 8. These verses are transitioning us from one emphasis on obedience to another emphasis on love, but these two ideas are interconnected. In verse 7 and 8, it reads this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I don't mean to be uh, um, crass or belittling scriptures, but have you ever read scriptures where it kind of sounds like you know, Yoda statements? This is one of those passages, even where I was studying, you read this and it's, wait, it's an old commandment, but then you read it and it's, no, it's a new commandment. 
And then he starts talking about at the same time it's new that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you. Now we have all these ins, you and him. And now we have darkness passing away and light shining. What is happening here? John is writing about an old commandment and a new commandment. But it sounds like he's writing about the same commandment. So which commandment is he writing about? We begin to find the answer to that in the last part of verse 6. Look at verse 6, at the end of verse 6. It says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. That's the transition from the moral test of walking obedience into the, obedient, the, the, the uh, social love test, walking in the same way in which Jesus walked. John uses Jesus as an example of Christian obedience. <laughs> you know, Jesus never doubted that he knew God. There was never a sense where Jesus doubted the assurance of his, of his reality as Son of God. There was perfect obedience, right? That's a high standard. And so as you read the end of verse 6, this might just kind of plunge you into despair, like, oh, well, I'm glad that Jesus had confidence in that. He was divine. But what are we supposed to do? Mere morals that are plagued with sinful temptations and imperfections. But there's more, more going on here than just the amount or extent of Jesus' obedience, which was total. John wants us to understand the motive, the means on which Jesus obeyed. And that's what he's calling us to walk in in verse 6. So he says, you know that you know Christ because you obey him. And you need to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. You need to have the obedience like Jesus had, motivated like Jesus had motivated. So what then motivated Jesus' obedience? The answer is love. Say, well, how do you know that? Because Jesus explicitly tells that to us. John chapter 14, verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me. That means he obeyed. So that the world may know that, here it is, I love the Father. Jesus' obedience was an expression. It flowed out of his love for the Father. And this is what John is calling us, his readers, to follow in. Obey. You know that you know God if you obey him. Well, then how are we to obey him? Walk in the way in which Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? In love. So this is why John is writing about this old commandment and a new commandment all at the same time. This old commandment to love, it was old. It it goes all the way back to ancient Israel in passages in your Old Testament, like in Leviticus chapter 19, right? Old Testament. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Jehovah. This is what the people of God heard. Or loving others. But what about loving God? They heard it in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love Jehovah your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Again, this goes all the way back into ancient Israel. This is why this is an old commandment. It's an old commandment and that it harkened back to what the message of Christianity had always been. This is why 1 John chapter 3, okay, same letter we're in, he says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. This is an old message, right? That we should love one another. But at the same time, this commandment is new in that it is renewed by Jesus and it's given deeper meaning through his cross work. This is why the same author, John, in his gospel, in John chapter 13, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Like, well, that doesn't sound new. That sounds like the old ones that we had in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Just as I loved you, now it's new. Oh, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
So it's new in that Jesus renews this and he adds to this, this deeper heightened significance in the picture of his sacrificial death for sinners. So then in our text, verses 7 and 8, John is summarizing this expectation to obey Christ as part of this old and new commandment to love. So verses 7 and 8 flow into verses 9 and following by connecting obedience to love and love is connected to the example of Christ. Jesus, in verse 8, Jesus is the light that is already shining in the one who truly knows God. This means that Christian obedience is primarily because the light of Jesus is shining in Christians, enabling and strengthening them to love God in this way, to obey God. For a Christian, the darkness of sin is passing away because Jesus is shining in them, verse 8. I cannot overstate how important it is for us to understand the connection between love and obedience in the Scriptures. If we, if we miss that connection, you would walk out of here with this big burden of, oh man, i got to obey all these commands of God. He's connecting them because you cannot have one with the other. You cannot have true expressions of joyful obedience to God if you do not have love for Him. It will drive into duty. It will drive into dry religious expression. And that is not those who know God. Love fuels obedience, and obedience is the evidence of love. Think of it. When you know someone loves you, it makes joyful obedience possible, doesn't it? I know that children are in here like, really? Because I had trouble last night or this morning or, you know, walking in here, obeying mom and dad. And I know they love me, but, but think about it. When you are assured of someone's love, you interact in that relationship in high trust. You're not evaluating motive. What's going on? Why do you ask me? To do, what's going on here? When you are loved, you will have heartfelt willingness to do what is asked of you because love assures you that they have only the best and good in mind for you. And when that is forgotten in whatever relationship, parent to child or spouse to spouse, when that is forgotten, then, man, the relationship really becomes challenging and difficult and hard, burdensome work. This is why John can say it like this, Later in his letter, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. John is equating, equaling love of God with what? Our keeping his commandments, obedience. And then he adds this, And his commandments are not burdensome. You might say, whoa, really? How are God's commands not burdensome? I mean, have you read through what God expects of people? I mean, our modern age laughs at that. How is it that God's commands are not burdensome? Through love. Uh, I know this is kind of a dorky illustration, but we'll try it out. Imagine a guy engaged, right? He's going to get married to the woman of his dreams. He finds out through his relationship that she does not like roses. Roses, she's deaf. Can, we just have, can you be deathly allergic to roses? For the sake of this illustration, she is. She's allergic to roses. And her favorite flowers are lilies. Now, is it burdensome for him to walk into the florist and look at all the roses and say, man, I can't buy any of those. It's not fair. This is such a burden. I don't even want to go into a florist shop because I can't buy roses. I mean, I know I'm being melodramatic here, right? But we think, whoa, buddy, somebody needs to talk to that girl and say, don't marry that guy. We would understand that love would have a powerful effect in his life so that he would walk into a florist shop and he wouldn't even glance at the roses because right? he doesn't care about roses. Why? Because he cares about her. And what does she care about? Lilies. So he's looking for lilies. 
It's joyful obedience. You want more lilies? Here they are. Why? Because it's joy. It's love. As he what? Obeys. I think what happens is this connection between obedience and love. As Christians, we can miss it. And if you're not a Christian, we want you to hear this loud and clear. God is inviting us into a relationship not of just obeying a law, but a relationship of knowing his love. And what that does is we love him then. What does that mean? We obey him. Why? Because he first loved us. This connection is essential. So Christians, think about it this way in reverse. Understanding this connection between love and obedience and the way that Christ walked before the Father out of love. We disobey God then when we stop believing God's love. Children, you can try it out this way with your parents. Uh, and talking about healthy parent-child relationships. Kids, when you disobey mom and dad, it's because you doubt that they love you. You're thinking, if they loved me, they wouldn't require this of me. And adults, Christians, when we, we respond to God that way, we're saying when we disobey, we think that a loving God would never command us to do that, would never require that of me. Isn't this what happened in the Garden of Eden? With Eve and the serpent? Has God said He wants to withhold from you this greater knowledge. You'd be like him. Disobedience to God is always a display of lack of embracing and trusting in the love of God. It's okay, you say, but this passage is talking about how we can have assurance that we know God when we, here's what makes it harder, when we love others. You say, right, I mean, God is perfect and he's holy, he's without blemish, he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's kind, he's compassionate. All these things, yeah, it's easy to love somebody like that. Well, I mean, say that kind of simplistically. There's lots of challenges in our worldviews that can, that can challenge that, uh, that idea. But now, look around in this room. I mean, really, I mean that. Look around at some of these other people. I know normally you're not supposed to do that, right? But you can do that now. You have to love those people. In fact, John connects your assurance with knowing God in a saving way with, do you love these people? Now it gets a lot harder. Now it becomes a challenge, right? In a greater way. And, and just one idea, brothers there, when he writes this, he's not talking about all the ladies in the church, you're on your own. Uh, this was a generic cultural term talking about family relationship, brothers and sisters. Uh, some translations will actually do that, put brothers and sisters in there so us as modern readers would understand that. He's not talking about specific like blood family, although it would include that, uh, perhaps, but he's talking about this sense of family of God, the people of God, the children of the Lord. So how then can we love others? Well, this is why I've been standing so long on loving God. Because if we don't know God's love, we won't obey God by loving others. Knowing God's love is the love that we draw from as we obey God in loving others. Because our relationships are going to test love. Uh, Verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, if you say you're in the light, but you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. It's this very binary There isn't any kind of wiggle room there. If you refuse to love your brother and sister in Christ, then the light of God is not in you. Verse 10, the abiding light of Jesus in Christians is the source of a Christian's love. This is why he's talking about this uh, sense of love being perfected in verse 11. But if you you do not love your brother and sister, you're in darkness. You walk in darkness. You're stumbling as if you're blind. So we can summarize the social test in this way. If you say you know Christ, but you do not love other Christians, then you do not know Christ. Loving others is an action of obedience to Christ. And the primary way we obey Christ is to follow his example and love others. We could look at lots of illustrations. We don't have time to do that. One that's very famous is in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan when he was asked, Who is my neighbor? 
Who do I have to love? I've got I to be good to my neighbor. Who was my neighbor? You can read that on your own time and slowly let that sift through the motives in your own heart, the rationalizations of your own heart. But Christians are to be distinctly different from this age and this world because the light of God, Jesus, is abiding in us, which is then why John, in his gospel, it said this way, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is walking in the way of Christ. This takes us to the central message of Christianity, the gospel. This good news, right, of a holy God. We sang a song about that this morning, of only a holy God would act like this towards sinners. The central message of Christianity is not become a good person, attend church, do this, do that. You say, well, hang on, you just said that we have confidence in our knowledge of God by obedience. Yes, remember, obedience and love are connected. The question is, do you know the love of God? I'm not saying, do you know that God is loving? Have you personally experienced the forgiveness and mercy and compassion of God to forgive you? Have you embraced and experienced God in that way? The good news of a holy God acting in love to make a way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled back into right relationship with him, that's the central message of Christianity. That's why we sing all the time together on Sundays. If you're not a Christian... I wonder if you thought you've known God because you've had some ideas, some knowledge, some surface, yeah, this, this, that. But would you turn from your love affair with sin and turn away from living life according to your own way and embrace Jesus? Enter into a relationship of love with Him so that now He is your Lord. You're trusting Him with the sovereignty of your life. You're relinquishing your authority over your life and graciously giving it to a God who has offered himself to you through a resurrected Christ for eternal enjoyment. To all the Christians here, the aim of this passage is for us to walk out with biblical assurance that we know God, that we know Christ. This is meant to be an encouragement for Christians, not something where you're like, oh man, I don't know, what am I supposed to do? Now, it certainly can have that effect. But friends, I want you to understand that God in every Christian is the Spirit of God, and it's going to flow out of you, what? The fruit of the Spirit, which is going to be what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. All of that looks like something in relationships. It looks like obeying God. So then for Christians, really, this should be an encouragement for us to remember all that God has called us to live in accord with, the gospel. Which means as a church family, how are we to live this out? Well, there's probably specific individual ways that can come to mind. But let's think of, think of how would a church family hear this being read and then say, how can we together as a church family now obey this and fulfill our mission of proclaiming the glories of God in our city? It can look like this. We're going to be helping each other and encouraging each other to keep obeying Christ. So we're, we're going to want to know, how are we doing? How, how has it gone to obey Christ? That's an okay question to ask each other in a home group. So how's it gone to obeying Christ? Give him glory for where he's given you opportunity to obey. Having humble, humble confession before the Lord where, where you did not trust his love. Your decisions this week matter. Because they are going to be an expression of, do you know God or not? Have you forgotten that he loves you on Tuesday and Wednesday? What about Thursday at 5 p.m.? God of the universe loves you and calls you into this relationship of love to him. 
Our decisions this week matter. They're full of God-centered purposes. So I'm looking at a room full of people who know God, right? Here we are. We've sung about Him. We've read about Him. We've prayed to Him. We've learned more about Him. And there's a room full of amazing potential for us to truly love in spectacular ways that could, that can. And I think it's happening, but even more so in the days to come. I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity for us as a church family to obey Christ and loving others. <laughs> We're living through weird days of pandemic. No shortage of opportunity to be arguing with each other. We're living through days of an election. And I'm not saying that there's there's a room for good debate and dialogue. There is. But Christians, let's remember this. We know that we know him. How? When we obey him and we walk in the way that he walked. What is that? We love. I'm confident that this church family will obey Christ and love others. And as a result, here's what's going to happen. Highlands Baptist is going to be this city set in a hill shining a light, not of our own making, but of what? Reflecting like, like a light uh, from the sun in a prism shining out to a world around us of a love that is much greater than any of us. The love of God for sinners. What a wonderful reality it is to know Christ like this. Let's pray.